I assume you're not going back to the office after you're going away lunch. I, have to, I think I'm going to have to go back to just pack up my shit. That feels like a morning activity. <laughs> uh, I've got a few things to do. Andy is just <laughs> into a bag. <laughs> well, I've, I've taken the stuff off of my desk. Now I have to go through my drawer. Like, I've gone through and vetted ah. out all of my papers the day that, like, they sent everybody home. But I was like, I have an appointment for a massage in, right. like, an hour and a half. So I might just... So I went through, and now only thing left in my drawer is, like, all the contracts that are signed. Everything mm. else is gone. Uh, but I have to go through and take, like, my pens and my markers and my magic bag. And right. I asked the lovely ladies who, like, cleaners, I was like, can you leave me a big garbage bag? Because I have to go through <laughs> some stuff. So they left me a big garbage bag on my desk. Well, that was nice of them. <laughs> but then you're all done. I am. Super Yay. And then you have a week off before you yeah. start? Yeah. That'll be good. We have a lot of stuff to do. Dan took it off too, so we have all of the stuff to get the house, our current house ready right. to sell, and then a lot of stuff to start getting the stuff planned for our new house. Yeah. So we have to try to pick flooring and seek cabinet people, but we don't have a mortgage yet for the build, so we haven't signed a contract, so... Do you have the architecture yet? Or? Yeah, yeah, we have all that stuff done, but until we get... The financing, we can't sign the contract with the builder until we sign the contract. We can't put in for permits. Right. So until we do all that, we don't necessarily know if we're going ahead this year. So we're doing a lot of work, hoping, and Dan is getting very anxious. That must be fun for you. (laughs) He's not bad, but he's like, have you heard from Frank? I was like, just call him. Just you you call him. You nag him now. You're a grown up. You can do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And we are into our midlife podcasts. This is episode 40. <gasps> yes, I want to say 40. Yeah. 40 even. Yeah, because 30, yes, last one was 39. Yes. So this Good is point. 40. It follows that. Yeah. One, yeah, for Way sure. Way to go counting. Yay. Uh, so for our listeners, you might notice a bit of a fanny sound in the back. It's not fanny like butts, but like. Uh, <laughs> Fan. So. <laughs> uh, so sorry, kindly disregard this episode next week, but it'll, it'll be fine. I'll do a lot of scrubbing. It'll be good. It'll be yeah. good. Totally fine. Totally After fine. this, we'll probably be back in your closet for a few Excuse weeks. me. Podcast studio. Podcast studio. <laughs> A.K.A. the closet. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> because when we start doing Friday evenings, I'm at least closer to your house now. At yes. Our new, my new work. So. That's very true. Yeah. Your new work, which you start on Monday. So the day after this episode comes out. Yes. No. Yes. We usually don't do the recording release date so close. But this is Monday's episode, and it is Thursday. This is Sunday's episode. It's Thursday. Yeah, but I don't start. Oh, but next you're off week the week yet. off. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck you. I, yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> That's why I was like, no. That's why I was trying to do the math in my head. <laughs> and crap, I've already sworn once. <laughs> uh, our regular listeners might notice that I have a foul potty mouth. And oh, so like I'm much better. Well, you are. I've noticed what you do is you like start swearing and then you like self edit yourself. <gasps> yes, I do that all the time. Yeah. It's like, mother. Mm. 
Yeah. And I'm like, I always see you do that. And I'm like, that is delightfully adorable, but also annoying. Just swear we're adults. Um, but now <laughs> your habit <laughs> has uh, benefited us <laughs> and uh, screwed us. And my habit, I'm sorry, I guess screwed us over uh, because Algonquin College, one of the local Ottawa colleges, is looking to fill airtime this summer. And so they reached out to the Ottawa Podcasting Network and have asked for people to put their shows on the air. So we are officially going to be radio personalities at some point this summer. Yes. Uh, the difficulty being, uh, the original email was, show is great, would love to put it on the air. However, uh, content is a little blue, and there's definitely a lot of swearing. <laughs> I was like, content can get blue. It's bad in the first episode, which is the episode the producer listened to. Um, tiny peens yes uh and then it gets blue as we've discussed i have serious like wasp issues so every time you touch sex items i get like ah, <laughs> it's quite fun yes um so they can't air those episodes that's or why i didn't list them in my episodes of favoriteness yes. uh they were willing to air them but only on the overnight graveyard shift and i was like we can do better than that let us get you a list of shows that are better. There will still be swearing. <laughs> that we cannot fix. Uh, but at least non-blue episodes. So some of our past catalog is going to be playing. And then we also agreed to do some kind of bespoke episodes throughout the summer. So uh, we promise to be cleaner in terms of content and swear words. Yes. So apologies to the producers at Algonquin. You've got a bleep one F-bomb that I've already dropped. I will try to do better for the rest of these episodes. <laughs> so I was thinking last night, it's weird, like the medium started on radio yeah. and it went on radio for 50 to 60 years and then it made the jump to the internets with the podcasts and all that jazz and now we're back to radio. So it's a nice little... But loop. college radio has always been sort of that like indie pushing things. Testing ground. Testing ground, right? I, I, I don't necessarily think of college radio in the Canadian context I really think of college radio in the states like that's how REM got started like right. those really big college radio think picture pitch perfect that's what I was gonna say like my concept of college radio comes from movies and TV because yeah. I never listened to the Ottawa University radio station and it since folded um, or it's like changed its complete model or something like that but like yeah Pitch like perfect. my uh, mun has one. My cousin did a show on it for years. Oh. My cousin's also much younger than me, <laughs> so I haven't even I don't even lived in the province when he was doing his radio right. show. But yeah, he used to do a radio show on there. So yes, it's still somewhat alive and well. But I didn't even know that Algonquin had a radio uh, station until you told me, and I went to Algonquin. So. <laughs> well, it stands to reason because they have their media broadcasting program, right? That's true. So. Gotta hope that they would at least give their students a platform to practice on. Fingers crossed. So I guess I'll be listening to Algonquin Radio on Hope my drive home. Hopefully not at 2 a.m. And yeah. uh, you can actually hear content and not just beeps. Because that's their job this week is beeping out <laughs> me <laughs> on a bunch of the episodes we've already sent them. So well, I'm really glad that I'm a self-censor. Uh, yes. I think it's because I like to swear, but I can't swear in front of my mom. So like mm. I started doing it at like as a teenager. Right. So now I can swear freely anywhere because I can self-censor myself to be like, ah. yeah. I had my parent, my dad couldn't really have cared or if he did, he didn't say anything. It like, drove my mom crazy. So I just would speak cleaner around them until I moved out on my own. And then I was like, you know what? If you're not paying rent or my mortgage, you really don't get a say in this. So. <laughs> 
that I, I was gonna swear now, but I just I can't. So we need like a swear jar. <laughs> And I owe you a dollar every time. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Dan, that's why we're play for the house. (laughs) Within a week. (laughs) Elise will have funded the entire operation, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, that's our news for this week. And now we get to dive into our stories. Who wants to go first? I cannot remember who went first last time. What was last week's episode? Illusions. Illusions. So you, I did... um, Scams. Scams. I think I went first. Yes. So you go first. So I go first. Okay. I am <laughs> super effing excited about this one. See, effing, not the nice. Um, is bloody okay? <laughs> I certainly hope so. <laughs> it must be. That's an American. That's a British thing. Yeah, it's can we just swear British style bollocks? Twat waffles. No. Um, <laughs> so my story this week. Can, comes from a listicle that I read forever ago about Princess Michael of Kent. Oh, yes. Yes, I sent it to you. She is bonkers. Yes, she is truly a rabbit hole of a human being. Like, and like, not a, like, a, an easy rabbit hole, more like the kind where you hit a bunch of walls and a bunch of layers as you go down, as you fall down it, like Alice style, but like, if Alice was hitting like the bookcase and the, the chairs and just kept falling. Nazis. <laughs> and Nazis. Uh, <laughs> So given her daughter just got married, I would like to note on the one year anniversary of Meghan and Harry's wedding in the same spot, because that's some big D energy right there (laughs) to pull that. I felt the time was ripe to do a story on Princess Michael of Kent. I originally was gonna do a story about just shady royals in general, but then I started getting into this woman and I was like, this is an entire episode in and of itself. So (laughs) she gets full honors this time around. So, Princess Michael of Kent was actually born Baroness Marie Christine von Reinbitz in... uh, Reinbitz? No, Reibnitz. Neither are good, let's be honest. No, and I'm not judging you, I'm just saying... Yeah. That's a name. Yeah. Benintz, R-E-I-B-N-I-T-Z. Oh, please don't ask me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to help. I'm going to (laughs) mess up a bunch of names in my story, so... Right. So... She was born, Mary Christine, on January 15th, 1945, and was the younger child of a baron and a countess of Hungary. And you know my general theory about people who were born at the same time as Hitler was alive on Earth, right? So, foreshadowing is all I'm saying. (laughs) Oh, oh, by the way, my theory is if you shared the Earth with Hitler, there's got to be something a little bit wrong with you. Just a little bit. Sometimes a lot of bit, but at least a little bit. So You breathe some air. Yeah, those shared molecules is not good. Anyway, she was born near Carlsbad in Bohemia uh, on the estate of her maternal grandmother, who was a princess. As her website says, and her website is delightful, uh, its official title is the official website of HRH Princess Michael of Kent, open brackets, writer, historian, lecturer, interior designer, and art consultant, close bracket. Mouthful, <laughs> and it's delightful. So as that website claims, she descends from ancient European lineage on both sides of her family. So she's related to herself. Pretty much. It's just shocking she doesn't have like a flipper growing up the side of her face. (laughs) But yeah. Uh, That is literally the quote from her website, ancient European lineage on both sides of her family. She claims that she can trace her lineage back to French kings and queens of the uh, medieval ages and German and Hungarian nobility. Prove it. (laughs) 
I want to see some paint and She dip. probably can. And it's probably more like the family tapestry in Harry Potter of like the black family. That's true. Where yes. like they can't peel it off the wall because like evil has stuck it there. <laughs> I'm just saying. Her dad, and here's why I say that. Her dad was a major in the Schutzstaffel or the SS during World War II. Nice. A legit Nazi. So there Not just it is. a little Nazi. A, a big Nazi. Yeah. A, a big Nazi. A major Nazi, if you will. Hi <laughs> Puns. <laughs> so her parents divorced uh, the year after she was born, so shortly after the war. And after the divorce, she lived in Australia, Austria, and on her father's farm in Mozambique. And uh, <coughs> colonizing. <coughs> That's a legit claim of colonization. Like, if you were German. Also running from his... Nuremberg. <laughs> Nazi. Past. Yes. yes. But if you were white and owned a farm in Mozambique at that period, uh, you got there in not a good way. Yeah. <laughs> she moved, so she bopped around when she was growing up and then moved from Vienna to London in 1968 to become an apprentice interior designer and to study art history. She married her first husband, a man named Thomas Trowbridge, who was the younger brother of a baron. When they met, and this is the most extra thing I've ever had to say in my life, they met at a boar hunt in Germany in 1971. That is very extra. It is. It's real bourgeois. Like, yowzas. So they married uh, in 1971. They separated in 1973, but weren't officially divorced until 1977. And the union was annulled by the Pope in May of 1978 because she is a Catholic. And her husband was Catholic. So they had to get that sucker annulled, yes. not just divorced. And divorce is the legal paper annulled yes. means the church says it never actually happened. So you're good to go. So she was divorced in 1977, in April of 1977. And then she married His Royal Highness Prince Michael of Kent, the first cousin of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, while in Vienna in June of 1978. So... No, I have my dates wrong. The union was annulled by the Pope in May 78. So, and then they got married in June. So it was a month. She waited a month between the end of one marriage and the start of the next one. But why would the Pope necessarily give her an annulment? She's marrying a Church of England. That is true money. Yeah. Church will do anything for a couple of true. donations. So... <laughs> Uh, Princess Michael of Kent's first marriage to Thomas Trowbridge was annulled in May 1978, and then she took a whole 30 days and married Prince Michael of Kent in June 1978. Awesome. We assume it's 30 days. It could have been 28. Like, it was a month later. (laughs) It could have been three days if they got annulled at the last of May. (laughs) So... They got married civilly in 78, and then with the Pope's blessing, they later married in the Roman Catholic Church in 1983. And they needed that because he was Church of England. She was uh, technically divorced. So they needed to get special permission to get married with the Roman Catholic rite. Again, I'm assuming some moolah changed hands that week. Yep. So between, uh, in that marriage, uh, the Kents have two children, Lord Frederick Windsor and Lady Gabriella Windsor, and Gabriella is the one who just got married. But because of the 1701 Act of Settlement, which is a British law, 
that said that a Catholic couldn't be the king or queen of England, Prince Michael had to renounce his claim to the throne in order to marry her. Because she was Catholic, and she wasn't going to give that up and go Church of England. So um, he agreed that he was out of the line of succession, but that was in fact reversed in 2013 with the Succession to the Crown Act that was passed, which happened right before Kate gave birth to George when they didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. And so they decided they wanted to do away with the male supremacy and lineage and such. The girl could take the crown. So when they did that, they also took out the pesky no Catholics rule. And everyone's back in the line of succession now. Oh, so. uh, apparently, until that 2013 changed the law, though, Princess Michael of Kent was known to complain to everyone and anyone that would listen and some who didn't want to listen. Uh, that it was really unfair that her husband had to give up his rights to the throne in order to marry her. Then why didn't she just become Church of England? Because she's Catholic. It's Catholic light. Blood in, blood out. Like, you don't, once you're in, you're in for life. You're good. <laughs> but what do you think really means more to her? Her religion or the crown? Andy, as this story progresses, I think we're going to find that there's a lack of common sense running okay. throughout. Okay, <laughs> true, true. Point taken. The entire institution of the British monarchy should have just bended to her will instead of her bending to them. That's, that's true. That's, that's, that's just the woman yes. that we're dealing with. Uh, so the kids that they had, Frederick and Gabriella, were raised Church of England, so that's why they were always in the line of succession. So she was out, her husband was out, but the kids were always in. Of course, they're like fourth-tier royals, so really no one ever expected anything of them, but there it is. We can all agree the title is weird, Princess Michael of Kent. It's like there's a, a meme of a cat floating around online uh, called Princess Monster Truck. And every time I hear Princess Michael of Kent, I'm like, it's Princess Monster Truck. Like, <laughs> I love it. Because she wasn't royal at birth, she can't use the title princess. But by all accounts, she's obsessed with titles and appearances. And because she really resented the fact that she couldn't be styled Princess Mary Christine, the only way she could be a princess was to claim it through her husband's title, Prince Michael, and so that made her Princess Michael. Uh, as CheatSheet.com points out, it would be like Kate Middleton demanding that everyone call her Princess William of Wales, or Meghan Markle began referring to herself as Princess Henry of Wales. It's the same yeah. principle working there, and uh, it's bonkers. <laughs> so as you might imagine, um, Princess Michael of Kent's relationship with the Queen is a little bit strained. Uh, let's be clear on the relationships between them, though. So King George V is the current queen's grandfather. Edward VIII succeeded from him to the crown or to the throne, but then abdicated so that he could marry Wallace Smith. So they went to his brother, who became uh, George uh, VI and the um, current queen's father. The fifth child of the Queen's grandfather, George V, was Prince George, Duke of Kent, which makes the current Michael of Kent Elizabeth's first cousin. So we all forget that there was children born after the current Queen's uh, father, like they had three more kids. And so the after the Queen's father was a daughter, and then after the daughter was a son, and that was Prince Michael of Kent's father. How old is Prince Michael of Kent? Yeah, he's, he's up there. <laughs> like, he's a... He's up there. <laughs> well, like, just think of it. Like, so the queen's grandkids 
just got married and his yeah. kid just got married. But they married late. No. They must have been married for quite a while before they had kids because they married in the 70s. Yeah. And Diana was in, well, they were early 80s, right? When they got married? Yes. Yeah. But like. Gabriella was almost 40, too. Oh, okay. She's like so. 37, 38. But still, like, I just think of it like my parents, because, so it's the Queen's, so his dad would be like the Queen's father's sibling, right? Yes. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. The queen is old, so her dad would be, like, pushing hundreds and something. So this was his sibling's child. No. Sorry. Oh, her dad. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Yes. But younger. And but I can't remember like, dates. But, but must be quite a bit younger. A few years, at least. Yeah. So, they are first cousins, is the long and the short of this very complicated family tree that I drew with my hands that are audio fans yeah. won't get and then any Andrew was just so confused by because the well, queen is old and how is Michael of Kent not just as old <laughs> pretty much is uh, so the queen's nickname for princess Michael of Kent is apparently Val as in Valkyrie and that's not meant to be flattering uh, so that's still better though than the press's nickname for her which is usually the rent a princess because apparently, if there's an envelope opening, she is there. And <laughs> with very little need to get her recompense for it. Uh, Charles. So she's like a Markle uh, a relative. Who? Oh, like, yes. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Charles took the press's nickname for her as the Renta Princess one step further and started calling the family the Renta Kents. <laughs> oh, I didn't know Charles had a sense of humor. What do he does? Yeah, for sure. You won't see the Queen and Princess Michael together very often because apparently the Queen can only stand to be around her a couple times a year and so plans very limited interactions between them. You're the Queen. You can do whatever you want, yeah, lady. pretty much. Uh, in all the years that she's been married to the family, the only honors that the Queen has ever given her is the Diamond Jubilee Medal. And for context, my father has one of those. Half the Canadian Army got one. It was based off if you were enlisted at a certain date and had a certain number of years in service. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, like, it's not in the olden days where, like, honors and titles are given out, like, candy is, like, like, I get that. But the fact that she, like, finally had to throw this woman a bone after, like, 40 <laughs> years in the family <laughs> is telling. Here, you have the same as Mr. Kiss. Yes. Actually, my dad has more medals given to him by the Queen than she does. There you <laughs> so go. So there you go. Uh, it's not just the Queen who doesn't really like that part of the family all that much. The majority of the royal family seems to find her difficult. Princess Margaret, who is the Queen's sister and since passed, refused to talk to the princess for years, ostensibly because she was Catholic. I think it was probably more that she just met her a time or two and just didn't <laughs> like her, but that's hard to tell. Uh, someone once asked Margaret's son what he would wish on his worst enemy, and he responded, dinner with Princess Michael of Kent. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Princess Anne has been known to call her the, quote, pushy princess, uh, which, oh, not too bad. Eh, which she knows about because she's heard about it and has this to say, quote, it comes up all the time, but nobody has ever given an incident of where I have pushed. We're not very social. We don't go out that much, but they have to put a handle on me. I guess someone said she pushed her way into the family. I didn't. I held out for years, refusing to marry. If you'll remember, they waited a month. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you married someone else first? Mm, yeah. As like a placeholder? What? Yeah, I guess. Let's hold out. I hope by now you're seeing, sensing a theme of extraness oh, in yeah. what she does uh, and that someone is a little bit out of touch. Uh, if like not, someone else we know? Yeah. Uh, if not, uh, this should do it. So in an interview, Princess Michael of Kent reminisced that her mother tried to teach her how to cook when she was younger, and she replied, but mama, I will have a cook when I marry. Yeah. As a mother, if one of your daughters ever says that, please slap them on the back of the head for me. Yeah. Or get Auntie Elise on the phone and Auntie Elise will come over and do the honors. <laughs> she describes her morning, the princess's morning, as this. I have a tray brought to me in my bedroom at 9 a.m. Breakfast is served on my Harridan china. I have zero fat yogurt with cinnamon, which is meant to be a fat burner, and a pot of ginger tea made with grated ginger. Some mornings I just have the fresh juice made from five vegetables my manicurist told me about. This woman has never been in a grocery store in her entire life, is my guess. Yeah. Uh, and though she had two kids, uh, when it comes to diapers, she once told the press that she wasn't, quote, keen on the entire thing. She probably never touched one. Oh, she definitely did not. <laughs> Over under on that is, yeah. I'm not even sure she touched her children at a certain point, let's be honest. <laughs> children should be seen and not heard. And preferably not seen. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of kids, she's got a lot to say about her own. Uh, they are very well educated. There's no doubt about that. They have the very best schools and universities. She has said, and is on the record of saying that, quote, no children in the royal family have got as good as degrees as they've got. Obviously she does not. Mm. When her son got married in 2009, the highest ranking royal who could attend was Princess Beatrice. So I think there was some tension in the family at the time around that. Because if you are getting a third-tier royal at a fourth-tier royal's wedding, there's a bit of an issue. Her daughter, who was just married last week, uh, her wedding was attended by the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, and the Wales were represented by Harry. So uh, it seems that there's been some bridges mended, maybe because she hasn't been in the press very much lately. And also, they had their wedding at Windsor. Yeah, yeah. It'd be like, it's literally in your family's backyard it'd be really hard to not go yeah <laughs> so the kents as a couple live primarily at kensington palace in london uh the interesting thing there in 2002 it came out that the queen was actually covering the rent on their 21 room apartment from her personal bank account this was done um she said because they put in a lot of time and effort into charities on behalf of the crown but they weren't getting any money out of the privy purse so they were spending a lot of their own money in order to be patrons and patroness of a bunch of charities so she felt the least she could do was pay for their rent the only thing they were required to pay was 70 pounds a week in rent so 240 280 pounds a month for a 21 room palace precinct space uh, to be fair, though, they also had to pay their utilities. So, life is rough. <laughs> I also imagine that uh, utilities in a palace probably... The, yeah. Probably a little drastic. It's probably closer to what I'm paying in utilities then. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel you. The actual cost of rent, according to the annual report that was put out by the property management group that takes care of all royal residences, said that the rent at the time 
is was about $120,000 or pounds a year. So 280 pounds a month times 12, they got a pretty good deal on what they were paying. By 2010, however, the free ride was over and they were required to pay their own way. I guess the queen decided she was done supporting her cousin. Quite frankly, if any of my cousins came to me and asked for help with rent, I'd laugh them out of the room. (laughs) Like, really? Get a job. Yeah. Uh, Keeping up with her trend of speaking to the press without a filter, Princess Michael of Kent whines openly, saying that the family had to sell their Gloucestershire mansion in order to pay the keep on the Kensington apartment, and that she really resented the idea, and she hated the thought of having to downsize. Oh, Muffin. I know. My heart breaks for you. Yeah. She's got it rough. (laughs) So a bit more on how... This is privilege, people. Yeah. By the way, BT dubs. This is it right here. Uh, A little bit more on how she spends her days. Uh, Between the prince and the princess, they undertake over 200 public charitable engagements annually as royal patrons or presidents of more than 100 charities and other not-for-profit organizations. And her charities are primarily animal, nature, music, and arts related. So a very dilettante lifestyle from someone. She is the author of three fiction and four nonfiction books. The fiction books are about the French royal family in the 1600s and are known collectively as the Anjou Trilogy. Uh, The first book has two stars on Goodreads, if you're wondering, and you can get the hardcover from Amazon for $3.21. It wasn't exactly a well-received. No, it wasn't a a barn burner. No. Her nonfiction books include an autobiography centered around a cheetah that she raised while a young girl in Africa. So we're back to the whole privileged colonizer. (laughs) life um she was technically a historian i i do not like this link at all i don't like claiming her in that fold but uh the rest of her non-fictions are historical works one is an assessment of henri ii of france and diane of poitiers relationship which seems to favor diane which is a hot take if you ask me one usually doesn't come out in defense of a mistress but there we are she did it was french yeah but still Girl in the fireplace. It's a little, it's a little iffy. Uh, She also wrote a history of five royal mistresses, like looking at their roles in politics, and a history of eight princesses who made political marriages starting, like one a century starting in the Renaissance era. So as uh, one of the websites I looked at, it was Wikipedia, pointed out most of her subjects were actually her cousins. So she kept it in the family. Again, she descends from royalty on both sides, so they're all her cousins. Exactly. On both sides. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, As an author, she also seemed to have had some sort of deal with a publication called the Oriental Magazine, because between 2000 and 2004, she published a bunch of, have you ever noticed how, type of articles. The problem is, is on her website, they just have like the first couple lines and says, if you want the full article, please contact us. And I, I yeah. don't care enough about her to contact her and give her the thrill. So I just, my perusal from like the first couple lines are like, well, when my husband and I were honeymooning in Istanbul, he said he'd never been to Venice and I was completely shocked. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I could slap you right now. <laughs> that is some privilege. Yes. As someone who likes to call it white privilege, yes, this and oh. you. But how do you? Also, she published it in Oriental magazine. But 
So Dan asked me the other day, he's like, she, she's really heard, you are really heard on the white privilege. Like, yeah. But you also love the monarchy, which is the poster children for white privilege. But it's like when I did my problematic media story. Like, as long as you acknowledge the problematic aspects of it, like, you're good. Like, I can acknowledge, like, how terrible white privilege is and also am thrilled to see what color nail polish Meghan Merkel happens to be wearing this week. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. Well, she isn't really a, she's a, but your love of the queen, that's a little bit more. She's a badass, and I'm not going to be ashamed of that swear word. She but, could fix my car better than I can, like, yes. if we're honest with ourselves. I love how she wears those bright colors. Yeah, those I would tone down, but that's just me. <laughs> that hot pink suit that, that she was, wore? That yeah. Was like, that was, like, neon <laughs> to this fourth-tier royal wedding? Yes. But Yes. I'm I'm a ball of contradictions. I acknowledge this fact. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, where was I? Oh, so the rest of my story is just messed up things that she said. So this is where the fun happens in this story. She told American fashion magazine W that she had, quote, more royal blood in her veins than any person to marry into the royal family since Prince Philip. I mean, she's not wrong, but you just don't say it. <laughs> That also means that she's really related to her husband. Well, she's related to Prince Philip as well. Like, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, this one's bad. In 2004, she told a group of black diners in, New- in a New York restaurant to, quote, get back to the colonies because they were making too much noise for her. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, it gets worse. Uh, this got a lot of media attention, so she tried to clarify by explaining that what she actually said and she said it to one of her friends, not to the diners, was, quote, she would be glad to get back to the colonies in order to escape her noisy neighbors. Not entirely sure that's better. Yeah, I mean, she tried. In another attempt to smooth things over, (laughs) because she kept digging, she said, quote, I did not say back to the colonies. I said you should remember the colonies. Back in the days of the colonies, there were rules uh, that were very good. And now I'm positive that that's not actually better than the first. That is, that's much worse than the first. I think she should have just stuck with her second. If that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. She should have never said it at all. But the the second one was probably the The closest we could get to. Yeah. It's all cringeworthy, though. Yes. Uh, she then doubled down even oh. further because the media wouldn't immediately jump to her side and labeled her accusers as, quote, a bunch of rappers. Uh, yeah. Fun fact, they weren't actually rappers. Uh, they were an investment banker, a music executive, a reporter, a television fashion correspondent, and a lawyer. So. All with better degrees than her children. (laughs) All better adjusted than her children, at least, I'm going to say. In the same interview where the, she made the whole bunch of rappers comment, uh, she tried the whole I love black people line, but it didn't go so well because this is how she worded it. Quote, I even pretended years ago to be an African, a half-cased African, but because of my light eyes, I did not get away with it. But I dyed my hair black. <laughs> what you cannot see, listeners, <laughs> is Andy's like head in her hands and just shaking it like, oh, sweet Jesus. She literally tried to Rachel Dolezal her situation <laughs> like, before the, the Rachel Dolezal situation happened. Oh, 
then, then, and what the interviewer could only have figured out was a gift from God, she went on to say this, quote, I traveled on African buses. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted experiences from Cape Town to right up in northern Mozambique. I had this adventure with these absolutely adorable special people, and to call me racist, it's a knife through the heart because I really love these people. Yeah. Uh, the adorable special people seems to be what really angered the black community. I can't say I blame them. Uh, and also, it's basically what she was trying there was, I have black friends, so I can't be racist. It's not actually how that works. No. No. Also, I appreciate her attempts to Jack Kerouac her trips <laughs> through, like, Africa. She's retconning the whole situation. Yeah. Yeah. No. No, we're not buying it. However, I do believe there's probably just as much drugs involved in that trip. <laughs> Very much so. I'm, yeah, probably. So that was 2004. In 2005, she really channeled her Nazi heritage when she gave an interview to promote one of her books and said that Britons should be more concerned about the bloodlines of their children. Yeah. The actual quote goes, and I quote, the English take the breeding of their horses and dogs more seriously than they do their children. God forbid that the wrong drop of blood should go into their Labrador, but their children marry everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the Nazi coming through there. Um, so people have questioned her on her father's past, and her response to that uh, in this one instance was, quote, My shoulders are broad. I shall have to carry it. I wasn't alive when all this happened, so I hope people will judge me on my performance on what I am. I think that's what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're doing, lady. As soon as a uh, European of that generation says bloodlines, I start getting nervous. <laughs> I'm sure the uh, state of Israel starts to get nervous, too, because they've been there before. Yeah. So, uh, further instances of um, open foot insert mouth here. No. Open mouth insert foot here. In January 2014, in an interview, she described the older generation of the royal family as boring for most people. She's not going to make any friends with that. Also, she is the older generation <laughs> right? of the royal family. This is very true. Uh, and she's made quite a few quotes on the records about various members of the royal family. Yeah. So in that interview, the January 2014 interview, she claimed that she was, quote, very fond of Diana, Princess of Wales, but also stated that the princess had very little education. If I'm not mistaken, she had formal education, was a teacher, and was working when she got engaged, but okay. Uh, so she claimed that she did like Diana, but that's curious because there have been several reports of her shit-talking Diana at various points throughout her time with the royal family, calling her, and that's Diana, quote, bitter and nasty. That was the quote that came out around the time of the divorce. So She even said that Diana's problem with the royals came about because she grew up without a mother, and that made it, quote, much harder to cope with her royal status. And she said the same thing about Sarah of York, too, by the way. Low blows. Yes. <laughs> really low blows. So. I'm surprised Fergie never hit her. I know, right? Oh, I'd pay good money. Fergie's turned into, like, the vodka aunt of that family. And, like, I really... And, like, in a delightful way. Not in the obnoxious, like, grating way it used to be. Like, delightful way. Now I love it. So the full quote for that whole situation is, quote... Like, probably many people of little education who find themselves, like, pop stars or film stars... 
suddenly lauded by the whole world, it is very difficult if you have not had a mother bringing you up who was quite stern and strict. She did not have a mother bringing her up. She did not have much education, so it is much harder to cope. I think what she means by education is the royal education. Maybe. Right? Like, not school. But she, like, Diana was still a royal... Yeah, she's a Spencer, which was a descendant from Churchill, who was a descendant from the Earls of Marlborough, who like, ran the country with the kings. Like, Blenheim is a fabulous country cottage slash palace. So the Spencers are... That's what I mean. There's a reason he picked her to marry. Yes, because she... (laughs) Was a Spencer. Yeah. (laughs) So most people who know the princess well say that her relationship with Diana and this, like, tension was motivated by her jealousy, which completely can see a young, beautiful woman coming into a situation... Uh, not bonkers. So, <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, all the press is paying attention because she was the people's princess. Yeah. Whereas Princess Michaela Kent is the Renta Kent. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, more instances of what are you thinking? Uh, for someone so big on animal welfare, as you would expect her with all of her patronages, this one is just weird. So in 2015, she said that, quote, animals do not have rights because they do not pay taxes, have bank accounts, or vote. She really drove home her point by stating, quote, you only have rights if you pay your taxes. You earn your rights. So how she can be a patron of animal welfare societies and at the same time say animals have no rights. Also, this is a woman who paid 280 pounds a month for 120,000 pound lodging a year. Like, I don't think she's really chipping in and earning her rights either. No. <laughs> what taxes are you paying, darling? Yeah. <laughs> And the queen is footing your bill because you're doing all these charity work. The charities you don't believe in. Exactly. Yeah. That was a weird one. Weird one for sure. And here's the most recent but very on-brand crap that she's pulled. Uh, at a holiday party in December 2017, she was photographed wearing a Blackamoor brooch. And that was a problem because the event was the one being used to introduce Meghan Markle to the extended royal family in advance of her wedding. So if you're not familiar, a black amour brooch or style of jewelry is basically blackface that's been done in precious metals, stones, materials. It's bad. It's really bad. It's, it's, it's offensive. The imagery is deeply rooted in the worst aspects of colonialism, and her publicist claimed that it was, quote, an honest mistake, but a palace insider who worked closely with the princess in the past believes that it was intentional and driven by jealousy. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Young, actress, beautiful, full, loved by the media. We're can s- play the media game. Yeah. Much better than she can. Yeah. So I go back to that whole Bloodlines quote as kind of a, and yeah. the whole like restaurant incident in New York. Uh, and she does have a troubling incidence uh, track record. Uh, One of her daughter's ex-boyfriends claimed last year that the princess had two black sheep on her Gloucestershire farm that she had named Venus and Serena in honor of the Williams sisters. Oh, boo, lady, boo. Yeah. So in conclusion, if this woman had lived 200 years ago, uh, I feel like she would have been at some point at the center of a plot to put her own kids on the throne. And she, like, we'd be talking about her in a very different context. Like, Oh, she'd be red queening the shit out of this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And I think if you put that theory to her, she would probably agree and wouldn't see anything wrong with it. (laughs) 
That's my conjecture. (laughs) No, I think you're pretty fair. She probably definitely would have uh, Red Queen the hell out of that. Right? That's what I'm saying. This, Yeah. So, yeah. Please do yourselves a favor. Check out her website. There's a picture of her holding a cat. And, like, the cat is, like, clear. Like, the look in the cat's eyes is, like, kill me now. Like, the cat does not look happy. And she's got, like, a tiara on. It's it's a whole thing. It's an aesthetic. I loved it. (laughs) It, And it has this... almost feel of photoshopping like it almost looks like she's a weather person in front of a green screen yeah. holding this cat with this fake tiara on her head like it's she's really also weird. like donald trumping the hair like she's got a hairstyle meant for like really thick kate middleton style hair but like she's got really thin yes old lady hair now because she's getting up there and it's just it doesn't work and so this oh, tiara is like causing oh, dance and the cat is just like i don't want any part of this like, I'm not enjoying this as, as, like, you're not enjoying it, but we're here. <laughs> God, I wish I was feral. <laughs> so that's uh, Princess Michael of Kent, everyone. Please don't sue me for saying anything questionable. I think I've far more worse about her, but... True, but, like, on the air. <laughs> so collectively, don't sue us. So I picked up this T-shirt for Victoria. That prompted this rabbit hole. Okay. And the shirt said says, well-behaved toddlers rarely make history. <laughs> Fun and cute message, because especially since I do refer to her sometimes as my little ball of anger, like this morning that it took me 30 minutes to get her back, to get her dressed, and I just ended up putting her back into her pajamas. Because yeah. at one point she'd thrown her sock and it was on my head and she was having none of it. <laughs> I found myself thinking, how many toddlers make history well-behaved or not? Yeah. So, that, not that, that many. That was my question, too, yeah. Uh, but the, here are some kids that have made history. I love it. <laughs> so, here are a few child prodigies that became famous. Uh, Wolfgang Mozart. Yes. Uh, he was a wonder kid and first took up the harpsichord when he was just three years old. Mm. He composed his first piece of published music at age five, and by his teen years, he had already written several concertos, operas, symphonies, and other stuff. Uh, Mozart and his sister Maria Anna herself was a musical prodigy, so his sister was also a musical prodigy. They traveled wildly wildly through Europe, exhibiting their talents in royal courts and public concerts. From Bavaria to Paris, audiences marveled at the boy wonder's ability to improvise and play the piano blindfolded or with one hand crossed over the other. Show it off. I know. During a 1764 stopover in London, he was even tested and examined by a British lawyer and naturalist named Danes Barrington, who was awestruck by the eight-year-old's ability to sight-read unfamiliar music in a most masterly manner. Uh, do you feel like an unaccomplished schmuck? Yeah, Of course. Always. I didn't need the show to help me with that, but yeah. <laughs> and I meant to ask one of my coworkers how to pronounce this. Sorn Juanita Ienes de la Cruz. That hurt. (laughs) Born in Mexico in 1655, she learned to read as a toddler and quickly blazed through all the books in her grandfather's libraries. Hmm. She had no formal education since she was a girl. Right. Despite this, she began writing religious poetry at age eight and later taught herself Latin, supposedly just mastering it in 20 lessons. By her adolescence, she'd also studied Greek logic, learned an Aztec language, 
and her reputation for genius later won her a place as a lady-in-waiting at the Viceroy's court in Mexico City. Hmm. When, um, I'm just saying, uh, I don't care how much you love your child. If an eight-year-old starts bringing you poetry, I think you're not going to like that kid very much. <laughs> just for being a pretentious ponce that you want nothing to do with. <laughs> I'd be like, you know what? Go be cooler. Come back to me when you're cooler. Well, this was 1651, so probably poetry yeah. was pretty cool back then. <laughs> Uh, when she was 17, she was for- famously tested by a panel of 40 university professors, all of whom were shocked by her deep knowledge of philosophy, mathematics, and history. The shock is, I'm sure, that it came from an uneducated girl, and I'm pretty sure they were all men. Oh, well, yeah, they were definitely all men, and I think the shock was more that she was a girl. <laughs> uh, at 20, this kick-ass lady became a kick-ass cloistered nun. Aw, oh, man. But that did not stop her studies. As uh, being an educated nun is actually was not all that uncommon. Right? It's probably the only place where she could actually continue her studies. Exactly. Because they would have books there. Uh, and eventually established her as one of the 17th century's most popular authors of drama, poetry, and prose. Hmm. Her image now appears on the 200 peso bill in Mexico. Cool. So, yeah. She was a pretty cool lady. Pablo Picasso. Hmm. He was the son of a painter. He had a brush in his hand from an early age. The future art legend could reportedly draw before he could talk, and his mother claimed that when he finally spoke, his first word was to ask for a pencil. Picasso made his first oil painting when he was nine years old, and his skills soon surpassed those of his father. And at age 14, he was admitted to a prestigious Barcelona art school. Just a year later, he completed First Communion, the astonishing mature work that was displayed in uh, in a public exhibition and now is worth tons of money. Hmm. Uh, so he was only 14 when he hmm. did that famous painting. The painting was first among more than 22,000 artworks that Picasso would produce in his eight-decade career. So this is what he said. When I was a child, my mother said to me, if you become a soldier, you'll be a general. If you become a monk, you'll end up a pope. He later said. Instead, I became a painter and wound up as Picasso. He doesn't have the best track record with women, right? No, but because Mama Picasso sent some really high I was going to say. (laughs) So nowadays she would be a hover PTA mom. Right. uh, Calling teachers and asking why they would be mean to her amazing kid. Right. Yes. Right? Uh Like, that's my assessment of Mama Picasso. Like, no woman is ever going to be good enough for her little prince. Nope. She's going to have to show her how to cook his favorite meal, clean his... Yeah. Yeah. This explains a lot. Doesn't it? Uh Uh-huh. Carla Schumann. She was a German-born musician. She didn't speak until the age of four, but by the time she was seven, she was already spending up to three hours a day mastering the piano. She began composing her own pieces at 10 and made her concert debut in 1830 at the age of 11. Hmm. In 1831, she embarked on the first of several tours of Europe where she won acclaim from the likes of Chopin and astonished audiences with her ability to play from memory. The young virtuoso later married a fellow composer, but defined convention by continuing to write and perform even while raising children. Well, I mean, this lady's got to do it. We just got to get shit done. Yep. <laughs> Uh, now, here's a look at a few kids who made history, not because of what they did at an early age or how smart they were, but because they're who their parents were. 
Right. So here are some of the youngest monarchs in history. Ah. So King Uyo from Uganda. In 1995, he became the youngest monarch in the world, and he was three years old. When the coronation ceremony began, the toddler slid off the throne, ran away, and <laughs> hid in his mother's lap. Aww. Now he sits more comfortably, and he rules the Turo Kingdom, a southwestern patch of Uganda that two million people call home. The 20-year-old oversees a cabinet and is advised by Uganda's president. You say the the youngest monarch at the time, right? Yeah, right now. Okay. Or when he was crowned, I guess. Because he's a current monarch. He's only 20. Yes. I was going to say, because like three years is actually pretty old in the long history of baby monarchs. <laughs> and we'll still get some of them. Oh, okay. Yeah, he became the youngest sitting monarch, recent monarch, I guess, in the world. Okay. Uh, Pomar III in Tahiti. Some babies shake rattles, others shake up politics. He did both. He became the king of Tahiti at 17 months. He ruled under the regency of his mother, his aunt, his stepmother, and five principal chiefs of Tahiti. During his rule, I know that we'd be shocked to find that British missionaries pushed their own agenda. (laughs) That doesn't sound like them at all. He died at the age of five from an unknown disease and was succeeded... By his 14-year-old sister, who ruled Tahiti for 50 years. I mean, I'm sad a baby died, but, like, get it, girl. <laughs> and she drove the British out. Yeah! Uh, Henry the Sixth was a bouncing baby king of not one, but two countries. Mm-hmm. In 1422, an eight-month-old Henry became England's youngest king. Two months later, he became France's king, but he didn't keep the latter title for long. By 1429, Joan of Arc had helped the French take the country back. England eventually lost the Hundred Years' War, and Henry literally went insane. (laughs) When he recovered, the War of the Roses erupted, and Henry landed on the losing side again. When he was 43, Henry was locked away in the Tower of London, where he eventually was killed. I'm going to say it said died on my notes, but let's face it. We all know he was killed. (laughs) It's like when they they named uh, Louis... Like, they went back to the French names, and I was like, does this mean they're going to start styling themselves the kings and queens of England and France again? Is this what's happening? That's what Louis is about? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Ooh. Subunsa II became the king of Swaziland before he could take his first step. The tyke was crowned when he was four months old. His mom was a kick-ass regent who battled Britain for control of their country, not by force, but them, by tying them up in paperwork <laughs> and using their own court systems against them. That's how you got to do it. That'll... She was, like, the first one in my my uh, book of, like, kick-ass moms that Dan got me Aww. last year. But And when I was writing this up, I'm like, I remember his mom. Yeah, she <laughs> totally tied up the British in paperwork to keep them from getting, like, full legal control over her country. Right. Well, that's yeah. how you got to do it. He'd keep the job for 82 years. Wow. Uh, he saw Swaziland gain its independence from the British in 1968. That same year, he helped write a constitution, which he then ditched in 1973. He became an absolute ruler and left behind almost 70 wives when he died. How come that's always the first move for guys? (laughs) Just start building up the wives. I don't know. Well, like, no, we know why, but like, come on. 70 wives. Come on. Tsar Ivan VI. When he was two months old, Ivan VI was crowned the Tsar of Russia. And it was all downhill from there. Yeah. 
Ivan and his regent held power for just one year before, oh, Eliza, oh, good lord, you're going to have to help me with this one. I guess you're probably better at history than I am. Elizaveta? Elizaveta, a name I can't pronounce, disposed them in 1741. Ivan spent 20 years in solitary confinement, moving from fortress to fortress. When Ivan was 23, he was murdered by his jail guards. Very sad. I think that was the whole... Wait, what year was that? 1741. I think that was all wrapped up with Catherine wanting to retain power, but he was still out there as a possible claimant of the throne. Mm. And so the guards... It was a military coup that got her in power, so she... There's some argument whether or not they did it on her order or just in support of her. I think. Well, that's how... uh, One of the antagonists died, right? Probably. It's the... With the... When Catherine of Aragon was first coming to marry Arthur, Mm -hmm. they had to, like... Uh, Her father wouldn't let her come over with this other really strong claimant to the throne because of, like, the Tudor's claim was a bit... Dodgy. Dodgy. was, yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) they had, like, his dad had to... Off somebody. Uh, Mary, Queen of Scots. So Mary's reign was sandwiched between two baby kings. Her father, James, was 17 months when he was crowned king. Her son, also James, was 13 months when he became the Scottish ruler. Mary, however, beat them both. She became the Queen of Scotland when she was six days old. Unfortunately, she was forced to hand over the Scottish crown to her son when she was only 25. Yes. Alfonso the 13th of Spain was born in 1886. That same day, he became Spain's king. Despite having his entire childhood to practice, he was not a very good ruler. <laughs> During his reign, Spain lost its last colony. It became overrun by a military dictator, and the monarchy dissolved. He abdicated his rights to the crown in 1941, after Francisco Franco assumed control. In his defense, he would have been one of the last generations of the Habsburgs. And even by the 1700s, they were starting to show the effects of inbreeding because they wouldn't marry outside of their own families. So, I mean, in his defense, it's really hard to be taken seriously when you're like your own cousin <laughs> and your own like mother versus father. Like, it's tough. It's rough. Yeah, it's very like uh, that one family... The dragon family from Game of Thrones, like the Daenerys of it all. Yeah, yeah, a lot of heavy inbreeding there. Uh, I mean, there's the episode title. It's flipper faces, like just. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So now to talk about some more recent people who were really smart kids. So Ray Robson started playing chess when he was three years old. In 2009, just before he turned 15, Ray was named the youngest grandmaster of the United States Chess Federation, and that is younger than famed Bobby Fischer. Hmm. A high school, and this is where my sort of rabbit hole gets a little bit offshooty. But, yep. <laughs> uh, so high school sophomore Jake Andrika seemed like a regular 15-year-old boy from Maryland, but he created a method to detect pancreatic ovarian and lung cancer in five minutes that only cost pennies. Where is this child and where is this technology? 
So I read about this guy on a list and had to dig deeper and then left everybody else off this list <laughs> because this had a little Elizabeth Holmes stink to it, right? Oh, and damn. Wait. Uh, so I clicked on the link in the original article and it took me to a, his website and that's a splashy site dedicated to getting him speaking gigs, which made me even more suspect. Um, Suspicious. Yes. And the background on, so and I had to really dig deeper for more information on this cancer detection because it's like, he created this thing. I'm like, but does it work? Yeah. So the background on the cancer detection method is that he lost someone close to him at the age of 15 to pancreatic cancer. So he turned his grief into action and set about developing a reliable test for pancreatic cancer. Passionate about science, he read everything he could about the disease and its biomarkers and the rest of the characteristics that are easily measured. After reading this and listening to his teacher talk about antibodies, he had an idea. A big sciencey idea that I'm not going to try to explain because <laughs> I, this is not Andy's science hour. Right. And that's not my bag, baby. We'll leave that for Bill Nye. Yeah. So why Jake had a great working theory, he needed a way to test his hypothesis. So he went home and wrote up his budget, procedure, materials, and timeline and sent it to 200 cancer research labs asking for their help. The way this article, it's like, he had this brilliant idea. He left school, wrote up all of this stuff from this idea he just thought of. And then mom called him to dinner. (laughs) And then mom calls him to dinner. Like, the way that it's like, anyway. Jakey, be sure you wash your hand before you come to the table. Like, (laughs) because he wasn't pulling his pud. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So he had 199 problems, but John Hopkins University wasn't one of them. I'd like to say that I wrote that. <laughs> um, Dr. Arabin Martia was the professor was a professor of oncology at John Hopkins University and invited this high school student oh to come to the lab to test his theory. Now, he even says in the article that I was reading that like this was an unusual email from even like PhD students. I don't normally get this kind of requests, but let alone from a f- sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. But this invite that he sent Jakey uh, didn't just get lab access. It was an invite to use his whole team of PhD researchers on this idea. Nope. Nope. As that PhD student, nope. So not to sound snotty, but I'm sure that what a team of career PhD researchers want to do is take orders from some teenager. Yeah. No. It's not happening. I got my own shit to do. And it's not. But they did. Oh, God. <laughs> so he went in after school and on weekends to work on his research, and after several months of preliminary tests and refinement, it started to, quote-unquote, work. This method has gained him a lot of uh, a lot of international recognitions, numerous accolades, awards, scholarships, and speaking gigs. And with all that praise, you'd think that it's a, de- a done deal, but in reality, it's still extremely preliminary. The research has yet to be published in a peer-reviewed journal, mm. which, as we know, is the industry standard for measuring the merit and validity of scientific research. Yeah. Additionally, scientists who have read his work suggest that the need for further research about the speed and the price of his tests. See what I mean about the Theranos stink of it all? Yeah. For our listeners who have no idea what I'm talking about, go listen to the dropout or Google Elizabeth Holmes Theranos. Yeah. So unlike Elizabeth Holmes, Jake has licensed his method to pharmaceutical companies so they can run the clinical trials. So 
he is at least right doing it as properly as possible. Uh, a, ne- a necessary step to ensure patient safety and accurate diagnosis. In an interview with 60 Minutes, he said, I don't want to end up as a lab rat. I kind of want to be able to come up with new ideas and then really just move on to the next idea and have other people do those repetitive trials. That sounds a lot like that Billy kid who tried the fire festival route. <laughs> uh, like, I really hope that this turns out to be as amazing as it sounds. And even if it doesn't, that this kid seems to be on track to make some breakthroughs in science. But really from his website, it just seems to be a lot of like pulling his own pud. Right. Please don't sue us. But I'm sorry, your website. Well, he's 15. Like, No, he's, he was 15. Oh, he's now 20. He? Oh, then he should know better. <laughs> yeah, he's now in his 20s. So he was at Stanford. I think he graduated hmm. from some Ivy League school. And now he's just doing speaking gigs. Like, if you oh. look at the list of speaking gigs where he's been, it seems very Elizabeth Holmesy because, like, she did all her speaking gigs about how. And I, like, maybe, maybe he will change science. Mm-hmm. But don't say that. You have created a method to do something when you have not because right. it has not been thoroughly tested. Oh, hey, BT Dubs, I invented a flying car, so I can't give you a ride home tonight, but, like, I'm just saying, I invented it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I invented chocolate doesn't make you fat. Yeah. You would probably make more money off that than Elizabeth Holmes could have made off of Theranos machines. The Edison box. Yeah. Well, so. Very that is my story. Yes. Yeah. There was also, like, a lawyer who became, like, the youngest, a female lawyer in California, became, like, the youngest person to ever sit at the bar at, like, 16 or something. Hmm. Um, she was pretty cool, but I fell down this rabbit hole of this guy that sounded like... There's another one that I'll probably post to um, the Facebook, and it was this Korean gentleman who was a child prodigy and was invited to become a researcher at NASA at 8. And he left there after about 10 years. So he's 18. And when he went back to Korea, like all the press was about how he was a failure because <laughs> he left. But he's like, I was homesick. I was isolated. I went as a child. I was eight. I was eight. And he came back to Korea. He had to go back to elementary school. Like he had to sit all of his original Aww. tests because he had to start from scratch because he never did that. But he couldn't get a job in Korea without all this credential. Right. So he had to, like, and he breezed through it. I mean, he was in his, but he wanted to move back and be closer to his parents as mom. And and now he's, like, works at a university and sort of, like, he's, they're like, oh, you're not, like, a, like, your child prodigy status. He's like, I like, he's like, how is my life a failure? I'm just, like, a normal person. And that's, I, I consider my life a success. Like, mm-hmm. he wasn't happy being at, like, he was yeah. also so much younger than the other researchers it was like it was well, there's very, no social there's no social network for him right so i think it was he um, found it really isolating so it's actually a really good read of this story about him and like going from child prodigy to normal adult and how especially in the media at that time when he went back to korea it was very like oh he's a failure not living up to his potential it's like i went to nasa at eight yeah it's like beyond that um i think it was um Super Freakonomics, which is the follow-up to Freakonomics, they looked at the child prodigy outcomes, and they found statistically that child prodigies usually ended up 
dead, broke, or drug addicts at a very higher percentage than the normal population because they get so much pressure put on them and are told that they are perfect and wonderful and how smart they are. But, like, there is a certain curve where we all kind of level out at a certain extent, at a certain age. And so once they hit that leveling spot where they become just like their peers, they can't handle the lack of accolades that they had growing up. And it just cracks them. Like, they're so fragile because they've been taught that they're perfect that as soon as they realize they're not, it's done. Like, yeah. can't handle it. Well, can you, could you, do you think you could have handled peaking at eight? <laughs> I'm still waiting for my peak, so no. <laughs> well, exactly. And I think it's just a little bit of, not just that, what you said, but also that they're expected, there's no point where they will ever be able to meet that expectation yeah. as they grow up. Yeah. Right? So not only will they level, but also... What is that expectation that everybody's that telling you that you're moves. the smartest person on the face of the planet? Yeah. So if you're not curing cancer by your 20s, you've wasted your potential. Exactly. Yeah. So. Never been so happy to be dumb, have you? I know. hey High five. <laughs> Well, that is our episode for this week. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us, head over to our website at www.rabbitholespodcast.com. While you're there, you can check out our merch tab, which takes you to our Redbubble store and pick up some of our gear. You can also head over to the support tab and our Patreon page and come on board as a patron of the show. We give you access to the not-so-secret secret part of the website and a bunch of fun content uh, behind the paywall, and you will enjoy all of the bonus clips that we carve off from the episodes. I think that's it. Sorry, my mind just went blank. <laughs> uh, if you want to reach us, we are on social media. We are on Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod. Mm-hmm. We are on Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast and Facebook Rabbit Holes Podcast page. I'm hoping to get back to posting regularly on social media. Yeah. <laughs> it's been kind of a chaos yeah. in my life lately, as it always is. I really do need to manage my life a bit better. Um, or just run with it. I haven't decided. <laughs> just lean into the crazy. Just lean in. Lean in. <laughs> Go all hell on bottom carter on it. Yeah, just. <laughs> just. Wear your robe to drop off the kids. Yeah. Curlers, yeah. I think that's where I'm going. Um if you like us, please rate us, give us a review, tell us how we're doing, drop us a line, send us an email. If you don't like what we're doing, then keep it, keep to, it yourself. to yourself. Unless you have constructive criticism, and then we'll take that, but I don't. I'm a fragile little flower. I wouldn't share it. <laughs> but if you don't like our banter, then you're listening to the wrong podcast. True. Uh, what else do I say? That's about it. I think that's it. Uh, so... That means there's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye.